But last week we talked a little bit about uh, really kind of in a general sense on revival. And uh, I really kind of used the movie that many of you have uh, seen and some of you haven't. And it'll be, uh, I'm not sure if it's still, at, maybe at some theaters, I don't know if it's still here in town. But the movie that will be probably out on all the streaming services before too long uh, called Jesus Revolution. And we talked a little bit about that. And I would encourage you to find, if you weren't here, uh, I would encourage you to go back and find last week's message on YouTube because I used a couple of important clips, not from the movie, but from the actual historical uh, event that the movie... uh, by uh, that Greg Laurie, originally a book, movie, uh, written and uh, produced by Greg Laurie, is built around was the revival, Jesus Revolution of the late 60s, uh, and one of the catalysts of that movement was uh, the Calvary Chapel there in Costa Mesa, California, that Greg Laurie was uh, saved and brought to the Lord in. But God used that church, Pastor Chuck Smith and his wife Kay, that was at just kind of the right place, right time in God's providence that was a catalyst of what was going on in the nation of, uh, and some of you were, some of you were bona fide hippies. I just know that from talking to you. Some of you just, that was your, you know, and, and we look back, maybe some of you look back and think, what in the world was that? Well, you, you know what the 60s were like, and in 1968, was a year that if there ever was a year that America was at the brink of another civil war, 68 was a horrible year of events. I mean, you had the Vietnam War at its all-time high. Uh, You had, in April, you had Martin Luther King that was assassinated. Later in uh, that summer, Robert F. Kennedy uh, was assassinated. And all that turmoil that was going on there... But in the midst of that crisis, we said last week, God does His best work in crisis. God does His best work when all hell is breaking loose. God is not intimidated by chaos or trouble. And so last week, we talked a little more detail about that. And so the title of the message is a continuation from last week, is a Jesus revolution, some biblical truths on revival. And this is just really a, what I didn't finish last week, and what I'm going to do today was actually the original message I felt the Lord uh, prompt me to, uh, to do, and uh, we're going to finish that out today. But just again, by way of a little review to kind of set the table a little bit, uh, revival. Uh, different people have defined revival. I like uh, old Vance Havner. Sometimes you can hear him uh, on the radio. Uh, he said a revival is a church falling in love with Jesus all over again. I always like that. A definition that is in your listener's guide, if you open your bulletin, you should have a little white uh, handout there, a listener's guide that you can get more out of the message and be engaged and follow along and, and get a little bit more of your money's worth this morning. But Ian Murray says this, and this definition is in your handout, revival is a manifestation of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in an uncommon measure, bringing refreshment to the church and salvation to the world. But although it is a sovereign work of God, it is also a work performed in answer to petitions offered by a praying people. Kind of a working definition that I came across that I thought was helpful is that revival is God's periodic spiritual intervention in the normal course of human affairs and the ongoing renewal of the church by the Holy Spirit. Only God can change people's hearts, and only God can bring about revival. It's not something we cook up. It's not a program. And if you look in the Bible, there's many revivals In Scripture, now they didn't necessarily use the word revival. Uh, The Bible uses the terms like visitation, God coming down, uh, uses those terminologies to speak of what we might would call revival. And uh, there's many, many examples in Scripture. In Psalms 85 verse 6 seems to uh, illustrate among many 
the heart of those who desire to see God work, where the prayer of the psalmist says, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? You can find that repeated all throughout Scripture. One of the famous ones in the Old Testament was, remember the prophet Jonah, a whale of a story that Jonah is. And so, you know, Nineveh, God took this pagan nation and God, uh, by His sovereign grace and using Jonah, uh, brought a tremendous revival. There's many others, Ezra, Nehemiah. In the book of Acts, I mean, the entire book of Acts is built upon one revival after another, beginning there in Acts chapter 2. But one of my favorites is in Acts chapter 19 at Ephesus, at the, the paganism that was so dominant in the city of Ephesus and seeing how God turned that, that city and that community upside down in Acts chapter 19. And so God seems to do, as I said, His best work in chaos, in spiritual and moral darkness. And God brings His intervention, if you will, as His presence. And I don't think many would debate the fact that our nation today is in a moral freefall. And we've been like that really since the 60s. We've been on a trajectory of who can hit the bottom first. And our nation, by its continual turning away and rejecting of God, and rejecting God's Word, and rejecting the spiritual principles that I believe our nation, imperfect, imperfect, okay? We are not a perfect nation, never have been, and never will be. But there's no question that God, in His grace and favor, has blessed this nation, and that God had established this nation as a beacon of hope and a beacon of light. I'm not sure we're a beacon of hope and a beacon of light. Uh, I believe we still are by His grace, but that light is fading quickly. We're more concerned uh, about trivial matters uh, of, our, of, of bending the culture in a certain direction than we are of some of the priorities that I believe strengthen us as a country. But irregardless of that, our nation has social and moral issues that we see confronted. And if you're like me, maybe, a bit, maybe it's a generational thing. Sometimes you watch things and watch what's going on and you think, was I asleep and woke up to this craziness? I mean, the things that are discussed and done in the open forum. I mean, again, your parents and grandparents never, ever had to go to the school library and protest drag queens reading books to children. But that seems to be the norm. And that just shows how far we have fallen and continue to fall. But listen, let's be honest. The Bible says judgment begins in the house of the Lord. The church has added its contribution to the moral decline and decay of our nation. The church has moved from respect to suspect, and rightly so. Because why? Because people that profess to be followers of Jesus have lived double standards and hypocritical lives and have said one thing and lived a completely different way. The Bible, again, uses terms like a visitation from God. Psalm 106 verse 4 uh, reads, Remember me, O Lord, with the favor you have towards your people. Oh, visit me with your salvation. Now, I believe that, the, as, as said in the definition, by, again, just way of quick review, revival, the renewal, whatever term that fits that when you want to use, is a work that God does. We don't, we can... You know, revival is not the second week in October where we get the deacons to go out to the shed, pull out the little banner, repaint the date, and put it out front. We're going to have revival this week, all right? And I'm just saying that facetiously. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about something we buy as a package and a program, and here's a church growth strategy. That's not what the Word of God has to speak of regarding revival. But it's a work of God that God does, and God gets the glory. But that is not to say that God doesn't use means. When I say means, He uses people. He uses prayer. He uses 
the ministry of the word of the Lord. So while we, I gave the example of a seed, if you had a, an apple seed, I cannot, I, can't, I have nothing to do with the miracle that God created that seed for it to turn into an apple tree. I, I, can't, I can't make that happen. But what I can do is I can create a healthy environment in the soil, using that as a metaphor, that enables that miraculous seed to be all that it was created to be. And so I believe that as Christians, as a church, we can't force or make something happen, but what we do in our own personal lives as we get an alignment with God. You hear what I'm saying? Is that we create a personal environment in our heart, and by virtue of that in the church, is we create an environment where there is a heightened sensitivity to the Holy Spirit moving and working in our church. I believe that God, remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, the Father is looking, looking, looking for those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Well, listen, and I say this metaphorically, nobody take it literally, if, 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 if the Lord is walking down Sleepy Road, He ain't going to find it at the Y. I hope He finds it at 2320 Sleepy Hill Road, where He finds the people that desire Him to be among their midst. Have you realized, and maybe you grew up and been a part of this, you can be a part of a church that God isn't even a member of. Because they're more interested and consumed about their program, their agenda, then what is, the, what is Jesus saying to the church? And that's what Revelation 2 and 3. Remember, Jesus was walking into, in the midst of the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and he said, after each visitation, let those who have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. I want spiritual ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. I can't hear what he's saying to Kathleen Baptist. I can't hear what he's saying to victory. They've got men of God and people of God hearing for their... But again, we, God has brought us here together to say, God, what are you saying and speaking into the life of Grace Church? You know, we celebrate, what, I don't know, 30, some odd, 31 years, something like that this, this month. And God has, by His mercy and grace... Listen, there's a lot of churches that are much younger than that, that no longer exist. There's some mega churches that have been in this community that no longer exist. I grew up in a mega church that no longer exists. In other words, look, there's no guarantee because you've got a big building and, and, a, and, a, and a popular singing group and a, and a big program. That's no guarantee of God's blessing. God blesses a people that want Him to show up and to be a part of their church, all right? So that's what we're talking about here when we talk about revival and the Jesus revolution. And so this morning, we're going to continue in that. And so with that thought, what can I do? Moving it from theoretical, practical uh, to application. What can I do to prepare myself and consequently the church that I'm a part of for a genuine visitation, revival of God's power and his presence. Revival should be a personal experience. Now, there's people that like to sound really high theological and say, well, you can't build anything on experience. Listen, next week, we're going to talk about the resurrection, right? And the entire testimony of the resurrection was built upon the experience of people that witnessed and saw a man that said he was going to die and raise from the dead, and he did that in three days and that's why John and 1 John could write and say, that which we speak to you, we testify to you about what we've seen, what we've heard, what we've touched. That's experience. Don't get so theological that it's all a mental head knowledge, uh, theoretical. Listen, that doesn't help me. If I'm sick, I don't need the theory on how to cure the common cold. I need some help. I need some healing. I need some medicine. I need some, I need some practical stuff there. I need somebody with some experience 
and say, do this, don't do this. And so there's nothing wrong with the experience. When you got saved, came to faith in Christ, I hope, I hope you had an experience. I hope you had an experience. But the experience of personal revival begins if we will listen to the call of God individually as a church, repent from our sins, avoid the attempts of trying to make ourselves right and good before God, and respond with willing, obedient hearts that are, that are tender, that are desirous for Him to work once again. Isn't that the promise of Second Chronicles 7, 14? If, my people, if, and I know that's to Israel, but let me tell you something, that's a promise to anybody that claims to be the people of God in any time, any place, any generation, any geographical location. If my people who are called by my name will do what? Repent, humble themselves, repent, call on my name. If, if, if. Consequently, if you don't, if you don't do the if, there's no guarantee. And so as I was praying a couple weeks ago, this is the direction, and really later is, is the Lord just kind of really at these five aspects, and this morning I want, look, I want to look at five prayerful words, and I put the wording here intentional, five prayerful words to experience revival, words do not just be points, but words that will elaborate and pray. And I've preached on Isaiah 6 several times, I know at least once here, and I refer to it a lot, but as I was looking at these things, the Holy Spirit just immediately drew my attention back to Isaiah chapter 6, and all of these things are just laid out there in Isaiah chapter 6. Now that's kind of the opposite of what you should do in a sermon. You don't get your points and then try to find a Bible verse to go with it. Right? You're supposed to read the Bible and do that. But that's, that's neither here nor there. Um, but that's the way it worked out. But I'm thankful that they're all, they're all there. But take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. How many of you are wondering why Sherry's still up here? I intentionally didn't tell you. I want you just to wonder about that for about 10 minutes. Well, at, e at each of these intervals and these points... We're going to take just a minute, and we're going to do something real practical, and we're going to pray after each of these, these aspects of revival that we look at. And, uh, and so she's there, but I, I thought, I'm just going to leave her up there and let people... And if you come from a real big charismatic background, I was going to say, she's my armor bearer, but you wouldn't know what that meant, so that's all right. <laughs> she's my armor bearer, I'm in trouble, all right? Well, I'm just saying, no, 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 no. She's not the strongest, all right? That's what I meant, all right? All right, Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, familiar, familiar. But let's read it, verses 1 through 8, just to get the flow, okay? Can we do that? Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Hopefully you have your Bibles open. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim, the angels, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Amen. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send 
and who will go for us? Then Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And I want us to look at five words here that I think are drawn out in Isaiah 6 of how I can prepare, prepare myself for personal renewal, for personal revival. How can I prepare as a part of this church? How can I prepare and create an environment and a soil for God's visitation upon us as a church, that we're not just doing the same old, same old of church life. And after each of these, we're going to take a moment to just pause and pray and ask these things to be applied in our own life. Five prayerful words to experience revival. And again, in your listener's guide that you have there, there's a place where you can write these down. Number one is the word hunger. Is the word hunger. Last week I went through several ways that we can develop attitudes that hinder a Jesus revolution in our life or in our church revival. One of those hindrances, one of those attitudes that hinders is just plain old indifference. I just, you just, look, I'm not opposed to revival. It, it just, can we do it in the next 30 minutes so I can get on with what I want to do? There's an indifference. There's a lack. Now, that oftentimes, if you're a Christian, oftentimes that is a result of because there is sin in your life. I'm not saying you're not a believer, but I'm saying there is sin in your life and it's resulting in kind of a coldness of your heart. You're, you're no longer sensitive to the things of God. There's a coldness. There's an indifference that comes out in the way you speak, the way you talk, the way your, your attitudes are. You're, you're overtaken with life's issues and world interests and all the things of God get choked out because there's no room in your life. And so when we're talking about these kinds of things, there's just kind of an indifference. Notice in verse 1 of Isaiah, this should be on the screen, verse 1. Notice what caused this vision or what the context, circumstances were that caused this in Isaiah. It says in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, let me just say a little bit about Uzziah, in other places he's referred to Azariah. We have a Azariah here in this church. It means the Lord is my strength. Uzziah ruled Israel, really Judah, and if you know the kingdom of the kingdom of Israel was split in half. Judah was where Jerusalem was. So if I say Israel, I'm talking about I know I know which part we're talking about here. But he was the king over Israel, Judah. For 52 years. Franklin Roosevelt was president of the United States almost four complete terms. I remember my mother talking about that as a child, he was president. And then when he died, how traumatic it was as she was in her teen years because they had never known any other president in their, their lifetime. Four terms, four, almost four, four years each. Uzziah represented a picture of stability, consistency. What is, what is Isaiah saying here that provoked this vision of God? You may just read it and think, oh, that's an interesting little, in the year of King Uzziah died. Okay, keep reading. No, in the year, let me say it this way, in the year that my world fell apart. In the year my world was rocked, in the moment that my life was turned completely upside down by chaos, by upheaval, what does he say? It was then I saw the Lord. You see, what produces oftentimes <coughs> hunger is a crisis, is a spiritual crisis in our life. 
Isaiah's vision of the majesty of God was birthed out of crisis, not only in his own life. He was a prophet to Israel. But his vision went from the temporary security of leaning upon the security of the king, Uzziah, as king over Israel, surrounded, the nation surrounded by enemies and people that were plotting and looking to destroy Israel. The nation is going through kind of a, a they're having their, their moral upheaval and problems. But one thing Isaiah could count on is the king is on the throne. And I'm not talking about Yahweh. And then one day, he's dead. The thing you trust and rely upon, hang on to, is dead. What do you do? What do you do? Guess what? You get hungry real fast. You get hungry for what? You get hungry for hope. You get hungry for answers. You get hungry for something that's not going to die. Crisis should drive you to a spiritual hunger and thirst. You've heard the saying, you don't realize Jesus is all you need until he's all you have. But that's the way we work as human beings, isn't it? He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up the train of his robe. That just speaks, it says it filled the temple. That just speaks, speaks metaphorically of the regalness of the royalty, the length of, his, of the robe there figuratively. You know, it's interesting when you study out the history of revivals in America and around the world. It's interesting that they began with a small cluster of people. They didn't begin as just big, massive programs. They began with a small group of people, sometimes just one or two, who had a hunger to see God move. It wasn't a massive popular appeal. A small group, a few, that asked God to intervene in our family, in our church, in our nation. One example, and some of you uh, may not be familiar with this, but in 1857 in New York City, a 48-year-old businessman by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere. Mr. Lamphere was a businessman. He wasn't a preacher, didn't go to Bible college, but he invited everybody he knew in his business community to join him at the, uh, the uh, North Dutch Reformed Church in downtown New York City at noon on September 23rd, 1857 to join him in prayer and to implore God in prayer that God would convict sinners and bring repentance to the city. By 12.30 p.m., he doubled his audience when one other person showed up. After an hour... Six men came in, but Lamphere did not give up. And within a week, he had a grand total of 16 people that would meet for prayer. In three weeks, it had grown to 40. And they prayed. They prayed for God to visit their city, their church, New York City, 1857. And a month later, on October 18th, there was consistently about 100 people per day joining him to pray for God to bring a visitation, a revival to New York City. By November, three months later, the church was so crowded with men and women who came to pray every Wednesday at noon that they had to use every room and hallway of this little church. And soon prayer meetings were being held in Churches all over New York City where hundreds of people were gathering to pray to see God move. Other cities like Cleveland, St. Louis, Pittsburgh were talking about five, ten thousand people praying daily and at different times in the noon hour to have God move in 1857. Now, if you can believe this, the New York Times wrote... In March 20th of 1858, the New York Times, imagine them writing something like this today. 
They wrote this about what God was doing there in the city. The great waves of religious excitement, which is now sweeping over this nation, is one of the most remarkable movements since the Reformation. The New York Times. Churches are crowded. Schoolhouses are turned into chapels. Converts are numbered by the scores of thousands. In this city, we have beheld a great sight in the business quarter of the city. In the busiest hours, assemblies of merchants, clerks, and working men, in the number of 5,000 gathering day after day for prayer and worship. Why? Because one man had a burden to see God do something. The Fulton Street Revival began when one man began to desire for God to move. Now, this is interesting. If you know your history, 1857, 1858, what would happen in 1861? The Civil War would last for until 1865. You see, sometimes we think that God initiates waves of revival because we're getting ready to go on a great prosperous, spiritual renewal, politically, military, geographic, whatever it is, we attach to it. But could it be that God in His providence moves among His people in a spiritual renewal because He knows that all hell's going to break loose in a few years? Do you hear what I'm saying? I think that when you read the trajectory of the latter-day church, the end-day church, you don't see a church getting better and better. You see a church getting worse and worse corporately, moving and departing from orthodoxy and truth. Could it be that God desires to breathe afresh among His remnant in preparation For the spiritual civil war that lies ahead? I don't know. I don't know. Psalm 119 verse 37. People who are hungry pray prayers like the psalmist. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things. And revive me in your way. Psalm 143 verse 11. Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. For your righteousness' sake. Bring my soul out of trouble. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verse 6, blessed are those who are who what? hunger. Hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. The question is why am I not hungry? Why am I indifferent? Why am I bored? Why when I leave here I don't think about God, I don't think about the Word. I don't think about prayer. I don't think about anything until i got to come back next week or if I put in my two, two times a month, that's when I'll think about it. I'm indifferent. Well, listen, let me be honest with you. It could be that you've never experienced a spiritual conversion. You're not born again. That's a possibility. But as often, I think, too, is that Christians are so filled with so much clutter and junk. This past week, I was out with my dog, walking my dog out in our backyard, and I looked at the air conditioner and the little drain there, and I noticed it was bone dry. There was no water condensation coming out of that air conditioner, and I took the little PVC pipe off, and of course, water started to come out of the unit, and I hit that thing up against the brick, and guess what? All the gook and clutter that was in that PVC pipe that was that was cluttering the flow, just came out. It was gross. But it was causing the clog, right? Look at the scripture in Hosea 10, 12. Maybe this is, I think many of us fall into this. Hosea 10, 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up. Your fallow ground, the Lord says, for it is time to seek the Lord till He comes and rains righteousness on you. Break up the fallow, the hard 
ground. Remove the clutter. Let's take a moment before we go to number two, and let's just take a moment to pray. And I just want you to take maybe just everybody that you're a believer, you should be interested in doing this. Just take a few seconds and pray and say, God, you say whatever you want. I'm not going to tell you what to say. We're talking about hunger. Just take a moment of quietness and then I'm going to lead us in prayer. God, cause me to hunger for the bread of life, to thirst for that living water. Lord, I confess I fill my life with so many, so many things that clutter and clog the flow of your presence, grace in my life. Lord, help me to hunger again. Lord, may my indifference be a cause of concern that I'm just no longer interested. I just don't care. Could be, Father, I've never, I've never sought you to take away my sins and receive your salvation. But also maybe a believer where I've just gotten so consumed with so many even good prior, even good things, but they end up cluttering and choking out. Lord, the life. Lord, let there be a renewed hunger. Notice, secondly, the second word here that we want to pray for. The second prayer principle is the word hallow. The word hallow. Look again with me at Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Jump down to verse 3. And he saw these angels. And what were they doing? They were calling to one another around the throne. What? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What kind of vision did Isaiah see? He saw a vision of God in his full holiness and these angelic beings were surrounding the throne day and night, worshiping the Lord, saying, Holy, holy, holy. And we've taught on this many times. And in his book, The Holiness of God, R.C. Sproul, one of my all-time favorite books, said, Only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that He is merely holy or even holy, holy, but He is holy, holy, holy. Speaking of His utter separateness, the Bible never says that God is love, love, love. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Wrath, wrath, wrath. Justice, justice, justice. It does say that He is holy, holy, holy. You see, in Scripture, anytime you see something of repetition, it's meant as an emphasis. Remember when Jesus would say, the old King James, verily, verily, meaning bold type, neon lights, above the fold, pay attention to what I'm saying here. So when you see repetition, remember, remember when the... Remember when the disciples needed a little reviving in their prayer life? A little renewal? They witnessed Jesus praying. And they're like, wow, I want to pray like that. He talks like he knows God. And they, they were like, teach us how to pray. In Luke 11, it says, now it came to pass, Luke 11 verse 1, now it came to pass as Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, Jesus said to them, number one, I've added number one, but he says this, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, what? Hallowed, holy be your name. It's not 
Here's my problems. Here's my list. Here's my grievances. Here's people I want to get back at. No. Where does he say the first place? Acknowledging a relationship as Father, holy is your name. You see, the principle of seeking revival is not seeking revival for church growth, building bigger buildings, to elect a particular political party, to give, more, to give Christians more political influence and power. No, revival in its very basic beginning is to exalt the name of God. It is to exalt the name of God. It is to exalt that His name is holy. Look, we can march all day long, protest all day long, and have the Ten Commandments. We want them in every library and schoolhouse. And, and you know, we, we just, we, that's our thing. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But you know what? And the day is done. That unimpressed God. He wants the Word of God to be written on your hearts. He wants a people that fear Him once again. That see Him as holy. Not just content with a lot of window dressing issues that make us feel better. But when the day is done, we violate most every one of those. Especially when it says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Psalm 108, verse 5 through 6. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, above the highest heavens. May your glory shine over all the earth. Now rescue your beloved people. Answer and save us by your power. You see, a cry and a hunger for revival is to see God's name exalted. God to be honored. Listen, God's name is trashed in our culture. And you know what's sad? Is some t- in some places, God's name isn't even honored among the places that people that identify as the people of God. We're so busy worrying about having every day a Friday, we forget that this is a word about an almighty God and who we are under this holy God. So we're going to pray. And we're going to pray and ask God to help us to revive a sense of His holiness in our life. You just take a moment to pray. Say, God, revive and renew a sense of who You are and Your presence in my life. Take a moment to do that and I'll lead us in a prayer. Lord, revive, God, your presence, your holy presence afresh in my life. All those things that I do that are so contrary to living a life before a holy God, forgive me, Jesus. Lord, how I trivialize the holiness of God. Lord, renew a sense of your character in my life. Lord, let me, by your Spirit, catch the fervor and the fire of what Isaiah witnessed. God, in the midst of his calamity, seeing the God who is on a throne. Lord, forgive me for taking your name in a vain, empty way. Applying it to trivial things God without the the weightiness of the name of God and who who you are Lord renew the hunger and the holiness of a hallowed name notice thirdly the third prayer word here is the word humility the word humility Isaiah 6, verse 4 through 5, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the voice was filled with smoke. And I said, 
What did, how did he respond when he saw this vision? He said, woe is me, for I am lost, the ESV says. Or really it should be, I am undone, I am ruined. Literally the picture of the word is that, if you ever had like a fishing uh, uh, reel, a spool of, of the, of the uh, line there, and it just gets all unraveled. You just literally have to take it off, throw it away, and put a new one on there. That's the picture he's giving. I am completely undone. I'm unraveled. What is he doing? He's not haughty or prideful. He is humbled. He is brought into a reality, a a real vision and perspective of who God is, but who he is in light of this holy God. If you would bear with me, let me just quote again one more time. R.C. Sproul said, If there ever was a man of integrity, it was Isaiah. He was considered by his contemporaries as the most righteous man in the nation. He was respected as a paragon of virtue. He was a prophet. And then he caught one sudden glimpse of a holy God. And in that single moment, all of his self-esteem was shattered. In a brief second, he was exposed, made naked beneath the gaze of the absolute standard of holiness. You see, as long as Isaiah, <coughs> as long as Isaiah could compare himself to other mortals, he was to sustain a pretty lofty opinion of his own character. He looked pretty good. But the instant he measured himself by the ultimate standard, he was destroyed. He was destroyed morally and spiritually annihilated. He was undone. He came apart. His sense of integrity and self-sufficiency collapsed. You see, that's what God does as a humbling. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves. You see, God does His best work in my life when I come to grips with the inadequacy of my own life. And as long as I feel like I can handle things and I can do life pretty much and I don't need Him until I need to break the glass in case of emergency and go crying after God. And He's there. He's a faithful covenant God. But He's just my emergency latch. He's just my bellhop when I need service. Verse 6 says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal they had taken with tongs from the altar. We don't really know about this altar except it's a symbol of, of God's fiery presence of purification. We understand what an altar is and how Jesus was laid upon that cross, an altar to bear the penalty of our sins. And then it says, verse 7, that he touched my mouth and said, Behold, This has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. How is our sin atoned for except by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. 1 John 1.7, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Let's pray and ask God to cultivate a vision of God in our life that I see my inadequacy in myself and my adequacy only in Him. Let's just pray quietly for a moment. Make this a genuine part of praying of a God's sense of humility. Forgive me, Lord, for the casual, trivial attitude of sin in my life. When things are well, you're an afterthought. May I see my life and any good or adequacy that I have in me as from you who are with me. Thank you for the blood of Christ that has brought cleansing and forgiveness of my sin that has atoned 
for my sin, I stand before you as Romans 8.1, that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ, that before you I'm clean, holy, justified by the completed work of Christ on the cross. But Lord, I need you to the touch of that burning coal in that, in that figurative way. Lord, the fire of God to touch and burn away, God, the, the dross, the, the junk, God, that so easily gets picked up in my life. God, forgive me of pride. Forgive me of uh, arrogant haughtiness, God. God, may I see my real self, God, in light of your presence as a holy God on the throne. Notice four is the word hearing. Notice how this came after the, all the previous things. Verse 8, Isaiah says, <laughs> he doesn't say then, but I'm saying then, I heard the voice of the Lord. You see, when our life gets in alignment, you ever have a car that gets out of alignment? You notice it for a little while, then it gets real bad, and it's shaking and bacon and you know it, it's whatever it's out of alignment some of you go to a chiropractor and get those bones in alignment because when things are in alignment they work the way they're designed to work you see when we hear the voice of God and I'm not talking about anything spooky or weird but listen I do not believe in just a intellectual mental ascent of Christianity. I believe that the Holy Spirit comes into our life and it's word and spirit that the word of God, that the word of God, scripture and also I believe that the word of God. Yes, does God talk to you? He better be talking to you if you're a Christian. Amen. And if he's not, you better ask yourself, why am I not hearing God directing and in my life? What is clogging the system? What's hindering? And that's what prayer does in the believer's life. Prayer gets us in alignment. Does prayer change things? Yes. But what's the biggest thing that prayer changes is me. Me. And that's what getting in the presence of God, where I can hear the voice of the Lord speaking into my life. So let's pray and ask the Lord. Some of you... Say, so I don't, I haven't, I haven't sensed God speaking. I read his word and it's just words on a page. I check my little box because I'm, I'm a type A person. I'm going to read through that Bible in a year if it kills me. Even though I don't know what it says, I'm just going to keep clicking those boxes. Listen, put away your reading charts. Throw it away. Read less, learn more. Read a chapter a day for a month. Let the Spirit of God, it's Spirit and Word. Let's pray. Father, Lord, speak into my life afresh. Make Your Word alive. Not just intellectual truth on a page, but God, may it be the bread of life, the food. God, that my hungering soul is so desperate for. God, may Your Word be more than just devotional, motivational thoughts. Let me hear You speak into my life again. Lord, as I align my life under You and Your, Your holiness, God, open my clogged ears. God, refresh my life that I can hear Your direction. I can hear discernment. I can hear the warnings. Lord, help me to hear your voice again. Notice five and last is the word harvest. The word harvest. Verse eight. Isaiah said, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? The us there, many see that as a little uh, suggestion of the 
trinity of God? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then Isaiah said, what? Here I am, send me. Notice the commission to the mission didn't happen until he got his spirit in alignment with God's agenda. You see, and I'll just say corporately as churches, we've embarked on a lot of weekend maneuvers and things, but our heart as a church body, and I say our church, I mean most many churches, was never in alignment with the mission and the purposes of God for our lives. We're just out trying to do a bunch of activities and think the more activities, have you learned that? That the busier and more activities you are, sometimes that means you feel like I'm less spiritual because I'm so busy. But that's, that's the falsehood of thinking that the more I'm like a Martha. You know Martha and Mary? Remember that story? Martha was busy making sure when Jesus came to the house at Bethany, she made sure the sweet tea was made and the fried chicken was ready and the potato salad and plates were set. I mean, she was busy about doing Practical good things. But Jesus said that what Mary had done, it wasn't that, she, that oh, don't do like evil Martha. No, she, he just commends Mary because she chose that which was better, a priority. Sometimes it's okay to let some things go in order to prioritize what's most important. I think that's why God built in the principle of a Sabbath day. Now, I don't believe we keep the Sabbath day per se, but there's no question God has built into the rhythm of a week a day set aside for worship and honor to Him. Why? Because He's saying if you can't prioritize one day, why do you think you're going to prioritize the other six? If you can't give me one, and, and the Lord, they're all His days. Just like we think if we give Him a little tip on Sunday... He should be grateful. Guess what? It's all his anyway, and he can snatch it out of your wallet just as quick as he put it in there. It's about priorities. What is my priority? The priority of Jesus is the priority of what he said in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain in which the Lord had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped. This is the resurrected Jesus. But some doubted. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Always going to be some. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Prior to that, in Matthew 9, remember what he said about the harvest? He said, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, the workers, are few. You talk about a work shortage. People say, well, I can't just hire. No, Jesus is saying the workers are few. And he pays better than minimum, minimum wage. The workers, the laborers are few. Therefore, do What? Go out and berate people to witness and to share the God. No. He said, pray earnestly to the Lord. Verse 38. Pray, Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Spiritual alignment. Listen. Spiritual alignment. And that's what all this stuff is. Spiritual alignment puts you at the place where you have the heart of the Father. What is the heart of the Father? For God so loved the world that He did what? He sent, He gave His only begotten Son. Listen, true revival isn't just having a kingdom party. Revival should always see the fruit of a people, of an individual, having a refreshed, renewed heart for the mission of Jesus. 
You remember what he read there, and I won't turn to it, but in Luke 4, remember when he came to his hometown in Nazareth? Nazareth, And he opened the scroll in the synagogue of his hometown, and he began to talk about and read from Isaiah of how the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. To give the blind, to give sight to the blind, to heal the broken. You see, he's saying, you want to know my mission statement? Churches waste a lot of time and a lot of committees trying to figure out a mission statement. Anytime anybody talks about wanting to have a mission statement, I just want to cry. If you've been in a job or a church or whatever, you, you've been through that. It's kind of like have taken another spiritual gifts test. No, I don't want any more of that. Just open up what Jesus said. What's my mission? Heal the brokenhearted. Bring sight to the blind. The Spirit of the Lord, he says, is upon me. What's his mission? What's our mission? It's the harvest. It's the harvest. Listen, this is nice. We, 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 we've got every chair, I think, almost out here. It's good. It's great. But if this is all there is of Grace Church... We've missed it, guys. We've missed it. God, how can I see the renewed move of your Holy Spirit? Look at these five words again. Lord, created me a hunger. I know some of you are hungry because it's near lunch. I'm not talking about that kind of hunger. Renew a sense of who you are. Hallow is your name. And as we have a sense of who God is, we see ourselves in true perspective. You ever hear about people, they go and leave their families, wives, and they go off and buy a Harley and go to ride off and go find themselves. You're not going to find yourself until you find God. Because you don't know you're who you are until you know who He is. Amen. Hearing. Notice hearing came later in the process. Because those first three things remove all the clutter. What's the clutter in your life? What's the clutter in your life? And does it produce the fruit of seeing others brought in the kingdom? Let's pray and ask God to give us a heart for the harvest. Can we do that? Father, how we need a heart, God, for what it took for you to come and lay your life down. That you've come not for the well. You've not come for the wealthy, the healthy. God, you've come for the sick, the dying, the spiritually lost. <coughs> you, came, you came to bring life. Lord, the enemy is out to seek, kill, and destroy. He's a thief. He's a liar. But your word says in John 10 that you've come to bring life. Lord, are we individually, I'm not talking about evangelism as some program we memorize certain things. I'm just saying, does the redeemed of the Lord say so? Am I willing to by my life, not just by my words, but am I, li am I living a life that my words have clout because my life is consistent with what I say? Can I say something? <laughs> if your life is, if you're a believer and your life is not consistent as a Christian, please, by all means, I implore you, keep your mouth shut. Get your life in alignment. Don't mock and besearch the name. We have, we've got that, we've gone so far. Talk is cheap. God, the reality that you want to, to do in your church and your people, Lord, I confess that I am pessimistic on the future of this country.
but I'm optimistic of your spirit working among your people. That God, you are preparing. God, you might be like what you did with Gideon. You took a mighty army and you whittled it down to just 300 people. Of people that were serious. Serious. Lord, I want to be I want to be one of those. So Lord, as a church, we're not talking about more programs. We're not about we're just saying, God, make sure that we have the great commission as our mission. That the harvest that you find willing workers God, are willing, happy, desirous to share, give a reason for the hope that is with us. Let's stand to our feet this morning as we close.